This is Our American Stories, and the next story you're about to hear is a good one. And before we get to it, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to sign up for our newsletter, and in the newsletter we'll send you our five best stories every week, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Share your email address with us and we'll get you that newsletter. And share the link with friends if you like what you hear. In this time of never-ending bickering and loudness and anger, our show is a rebuttal to all of that. And now it's time for the take of an obscure TV signal hacking incident that took place in the 1980s that's had the city of Chicago on edge ever since. Here's Jesse with the details. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. First hit WGN, its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The incidents are now under investigation by the FCC and the FBI. Last night, someone broke into regular programming on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The Max Headroom signal intrusion was a television signal hijacking that happened the night of November 22, 1987 on two different television stations in Chicago within three hours of each other. The first incident took place for 25 seconds during the sportscast on the 9 p.m. news on WGN-TV Channel 9. During highlights from the Chicago Bears' 30-10 home victory over Detroit, the pirate signal took over. McMahon and McKinnon, 14-0 Bears, then the defense, which hadn't put up a sack in 12 quarters, finally did. The screen went black for nine seconds, then returned with a person wearing a Max Headroom mask and sunglasses. As a panel of corrugated metal rotated behind this character's gyrating head, the sound is nothing but static. The hijack was stopped after engineers at WGN switched the frequency of their studio link to the John Hancock Center transmitter. The news anchors, realizing that they're back on the air, try to explain to their audience what's happened. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, <laughs> so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. So what we're going to do is start over from the top of the Bears and tell you once again about the 30-10 to 10 victory they had over Detroit today out of Soldier Field. I should briefly mention what Max Headroom was. While there was no affiliation between this guy who hacked the TV broadcast in Chicago, he was wearing the Max Headroom mask. You see, Max Headroom was a 1980s fictional AI character known for his wit and electronic stuttering voice that was dreamt up by an undoubtedly coked-out television executive with a profound sense of talking heads that would dominate mainstream media for decades. And by Coke, I mean Coca-Cola, as Max Hedrum was at one time the spokesperson for the brand itself. This is Max. This is what passed as cutting-edge entertainment back in the 80s before the internet, kids. Max Hedrum. So this hacker, this pirate, this communications vandal, broke into WGN-TV's signal in Chicago the night of November 22, 1987, during the 9 p.m. news and broadcast video of himself wearing the Max Headroom mask with nothing but static for audio, without explanation. But the fun doesn't stop there. Later that same night, around 11.15 Central Time, during a broadcast of the Doctor Who serial horror of Fang Rock, PBS member station WTTW Signal was hijacked by the same person who had broadcast the WGN hijack just hours before, this time with distorted and crackling audio. The sound is nearly impossible to make out, mostly random nonsense. But you can hear the man say, quote, I've just made a masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds. 
unquote. Whatever that means. Oh, I just made a giant basket piece for all of the greatest world newspaper nerds. <laughs> then the character exposes his rear end as a woman off camera spanks him with a fly swatter. Clearly, we are dealing with a genius here. WTTW, which maintained its transmitter atop the Sears Tower, found that its engineers were unable to stop the hijacker due to the fact that there were no engineers on duty at the time. Technicians monitoring the transmission from WTTW headquarters attempted to take corrective measures, but couldn't. The Max Headroom incident made national headlines and was reported on the CBS Evening News the following day. Well, the FCC says last night's piracy was the first of its kind in Chicago. Another one is on tonight, this one for the video pirates who managed to scramble Chicago airwaves. The pirates interrupted WGN and WTTW programming with a show of their own. Video pirate who raided two television broadcasts last night first hit WGN. Its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The pirate mimicked the Max Headroom character that you see on TV. Chicago television station, someone using sophisticated equipment managed to briefly and illegally override broadcast signals on WGN-TV and WTTW. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. Jury Deliberations Edition tonight is trying to find out who's responsible for two acts of video piracy. Someone who really knows the business and uh, microwave in general. Last night, someone broke into regular programming here on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The FCC was upset. Take some pretty significant... Uh, equipment, technical equipment, and some knowledge of uh, broadcast uh, frequencies, uh, microwave frequencies, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of power. Law enforcement was furious. It is very serious, and uh, we'd like to uh, inform anybody who's involved in this type of thing that it is serious and that we will take every step uh, that uh, we can to uh, find out who is doing it. And once we have uh, determined that, we will make sure that uh, the full extent of the law is uh, carried out. Viewers were ready to riot. I got so upset that I wanted to bust a TV set. I really did. I just thought it would be just a slight mess up, but that in the middle of the tape, it's going to have to tape over it. Uh, somebody wants to get attention, what do they do? They go break into a uh, uh, television broadcast just to get attention, like throwing a brick through your window, so to speak. Okay. It's, not too it's not too bright, really. But this little guy was, well, he was rather amused. Very, very funny. And that, perhaps, is the most valid opinion on the Max Headroom signal intrusion that cold night of November 22nd, 1987 in Chicago. Sure, it was illegal. Sure, it probably cost time and money to investigate. And sure, it was reckless and highly immature. And whoever was responsible has yet to be brought to justice over such a blatant and crass disregard for our system of law and order. But it was kind of fun, 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 funny. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards.
wear the starry crown. Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's go down. Come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is a story about love and family, faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen. On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived. With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves The dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history. It was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educator's list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. But ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government, that slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America so that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads uh, started in this country. Uh, Some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. 
when the uh, uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like this, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked in the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I pray to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman. We all know her name, but who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20-by-20-foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect, and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. 
After getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. (laughs) Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. 
After an initial attempt to escape failed, when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return, she set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that dream, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends, and friends of friends, back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasaya, and her two children, a son and an infant daughter, who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasaya's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasaya was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasaya's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid, but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more? He forgot to chain Kasaya up. Psst, now go, go. Kasaya, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. 
they eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was gonna lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We's gotta move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, <laughs> he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down, go down, Moses. Moses. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. You hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope. Even though we enslaved, chained, whipped, hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. 
there were times I knew things for they was gonna happen. I could see trouble coming and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake, more aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods... Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. 
Here's professor of constitutional law, Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, what they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell this story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harriet? You know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Mr. Garrett said this of Harriet. I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10, 1913, the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn, She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. 
Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have let out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved. And she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her. Everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross racial lines. The fact is, that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there is a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Everybody say roll, 
the year when Jordan rode. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in our free economy. And let's take a listen to Alex's latest report. Tonight's first place winner will receive $1,500 to grow their business and further their education. Second place will be awarded $1,000 and third place $500. In addition, both first and second place winners will be flown to New York City in October to attend Nifty's National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge and compete for the grand prize package. May 3rd, 2017, high school students in the St. Louis, Missouri region competed for real money. Hello, my name is Damon McKinney. It is my business partner. Right here, Larry. And for real businesses that they wanted to create. And we're here to introduce our business partner, the Double Backer Packer. The Double Backer Packer, what's that? Let me explain. It was just like Shark Tank. I like cash flow. Love it. Like the way it rolls off my lips. Cash flow. They presented before judges. To stop pretending and start profending. Woo! Love it, baby. The judges questioned them. Tony, how much do they cost? They cost right now, they're $499.95. And the judges decided. I love you, but I'm out. I'll give you the 300K for 10%, but I don't want to go through all this. If you want to work with me, say yes. And if not, I'll defer to everybody else. Done. Done. I drove up five hours from our studio in Oxford, Mississippi to get in on the action to meet these students who were courageous enough to put themselves out there and be scrutinized. The competition started at 6.30 p.m. and I arrived early at 12 p.m. to meet one of the competitors before their big night. To present their business, please welcome Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney from Normandy High School. That's all you're going to hear from their big night for now. Oh, yeah, it's a tease. I was also there early to meet their teacher, Obino Coley, who was teaching their entrepreneurship class, where they learned how to create their business. And here is my report from that afternoon. I am in my car outside of Normandy High School uh, here in the St. Louis area. And a couple of years ago, the St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch, the main newspaper here, said this was the most dangerous high school in the area, and the population in the area has declined by almost fivefold. 
more businesses here are shut than are open. There's more vacant storefronts than there are open storefronts. Uh, well, there's a glimmer of promise here at this school in this entrepreneurship class uh, that's designed by Nifty, the network for teaching entrepreneurship, and I wanted to check it out. Nifty focuses on bringing their entrepreneurship courses and summer boot camps to students in economically disadvantaged areas, like the one surrounding Normandy High. And over 500,000 students have gone through their programs to date. Hey, Mr. Coley, Alex. Mr. Alex, nice to meet you. Hey, uh, interview. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got, I got two Hey, how are you? I'm Alex. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Nice to meet you. What's your name? What is it? Rahim. Rahim? Damon. Is it your lunchtime? Yes. Yeah, so you decided to practice instead. That's good. Yeah, I know. I like it. I first asked them about their childhood, and here's what Rahim thought was important to tell me. I'm born from Atlanta, originally Atlanta, Georgia, and I think that's why I first started being afraid of bees. Of bees? Yeah. I didn't expect you to say that. So, no, <laughs> Is this like a huge fear of yours? Yeah, like, whenever I say bee, I run <laughs> away from that spot. I don't like bee. But, well, this is really on the top of your mind. I'm, when I, I ask you about your childhood, the first thing you say is, uh, yeah, I'm afraid of bees. <laughs> I never got stung in the letter, but like that, I, they just were flying around me and I didn't like it. Well, Raheem wasn't going to be a bee entrepreneur, but I was curious what these guys' experience with entrepreneurship was like before taking this class. Have you guys known any entrepreneurs growing up? I don't think so. Mm, no, I don't think so either. No, no. And now they do. Their class traveled to meet an entrepreneur in his 3D printing shop, something I haven't seen yet and am pretty jealous about. And many of the competition's judges are entrepreneurs too, including the owner of St. Louis's semi-pro women's basketball team, The Surge. And although these guys hadn't really thought about entrepreneurship, they were in many ways already living it out before the class. Here's Raheem. Cut grass and yeah. uh, shovel snow, but lately we ain't had a great winter. Oh, you mean you didn't have a great winter in terms of a lot of snow? Yeah. Yeah. Most people would not consider that a great winter. It was a great winter when I was trying to shovel snow. <laughs> For many, many years, this 14-year-old's been hustling like this. You want this baseball card? I can get it to you for a dollar. <laughs> Raheem just didn't know about the economics of his enterprising. And thanks to his class, he now does and is saying things like this. It's fun to like sell something. Like you get, oh, I just sold that for $40. That's a big, big margin now. Yeah. Profit margin is new to his vocabulary. How awesome. And it's a lesson that will stay with him for the rest of his life. Concepts like profit margin that involve math make math real to students, often for the very first time in their lives. Because it's now not just something that's theoretical that they feel indifferent about. They now know that it's something that can actually affect them in their pocketbooks. At the beginning, we had like to make our own uh, pro- uh, like our own invention out of uh, the materials that we had used, but we didn't. We did it, but it wasn't. I wasn't really serious. Like at the beginning of school, I wasn't really serious about entrepreneurship. You weren't very serious about it at the beginning of class? And you've become a lot more serious about it? Uh-huh. Why? Really, I think that day I really was 
surprised about my business. I, I really thought it was a great idea. Surprised about what this idea could mean for his future. And it helped him realize the potential he had inside of himself. That's the power of this class and a great idea. And when we come back, more with Alex and more with these young men and with Nifty and the great work they're doing across this country. This is Our American Stories, these boys' stories, when we continue. Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of two high schoolers in the St. Louis area, Rahim and Damon, and this is a tough neighborhood, but they're up to something really interesting, something unexpected, and it's an awesome entrepreneurship class that allowed all this to happen, sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Let's go back. Each student in the Nifty Entrepreneurship class has to develop their very own business idea and write an entire business plan for it. Raheem's teacher told me that he had a lot of business ideas and frequently would email him at night with his latest one, which in his mind was always the greatest one, of course. That is, until another one came around. Have you thought about any businesses that you want to create? Uh, at first, I was doing. I wanted to do waterproof earbuds, like earbuds where you could go swimming underwater. Yeah, and that- it wouldn't like mess up your ear or electrocute you or nothing. Like it actually waterproof, not water resistant or stuff like that. But then I had one day I just actually I had a basketball game and I asked my cousin could he hold some of my stuff. He was like, Nah, and I was like, All right, forget it. I just take two backpacks. And then I just got there, double, like two sides and double backpack all day. Like many great business ideas, Raheem's came from a need that he had in everyday life. And for him, it was because of an unkind cousin who we ought to think now. The double backer packer, as they call it, has one backpack on your back and another on your chest. And they're connected by shoulder straps. And what an apt and catchy name, the double backer packer. And older parents have especially loved this idea because it's more even distribution of book bag weight was a solution that their kids didn't have and have paid the price for. They tell us that they uh, children had that problem when they was in school and now they got back problems. So they give us encouragement. Now Raheem had enough foresight to know that he needed a partner. He was good at selling, but he wasn't a designer. And well, Damon was. You said you came up with the idea. Are you guys 50-50 partners then, or do you have more? 50-50. Yeah. Did you guys have to talk about that, or was it just assumed? We didn't really talk about it. Yeah. We just decided 50-50. Well, it's very generous of you, given you came up with the idea. I'm just messing around. You really need both, right? You need the design, and you need the idea, and you need someone who's good with the numbers. And but It's always good to have two people. Like, you, you might have a good idea, but as one person, you probably won't. 
succeed as much as you would if you had two people. I think if I didn't like have a partner, I don't think I would have been as serious as I am now. Just like a motivating factor, like yeah. you can't let him down? Yeah, like, like cause at first I'd probably slack off sometimes at the work, but if I got a partner, they encourage me or they get something done, I'll get something done another time. Yeah. Or we can just both work it out. Once they became partners, they did some critical market research, also a new term to them. Was there a market need for the product outside of their own personal need or what parents thought their kids need? And we see people in our own school wearing two book bags. But people, they, you see people in school wearing two book bags? Not front and back, but on their back. And then like they be hunting over. So one's for sports or after yeah, school like activities they, or they have cheerleading? Going or, on that they did wear two bags. But it ain't the product. It ain't a product. It's just them wearing two backpacks. They just had two separate bags and couldn't all wait on their bags. thought of it. That's why I'm trying to get a patent. <laughs> These guys are trying to get a patent. They are on their game. Raheem actually went to the U.S. Patent Office's website. But he found the government website to be confusing. Go figure in how discouraging for a young entrepreneur. Did you have to do a competitive analysis in, in your part of your business plan? Like, what else is out there in the market, and if anyone comes close? Oh, I, I Like, indirect yeah. comp- competitors? Or yeah, indirect? yeah, We have no direct competitors, but we do have two major indirect competitors. Eastport. Eastport, and Nike. Eastport makes normal backpacks for students, and Nike makes athletic bags for athletes. But no one is targeting both in one transaction. Until now, and thus student-athletes as their target market. Another concept they now know. But before selling to their target market, they gotta figure out how to actually make these things. We're not gonna actually make book bags, but we gonna buy like half the people make it for us. Yep. And then like we gonna design it and make We're our own product. We're still in market research. I yeah. <laughs> these guys are a riot. They're still in market research for their manufacturer, but they think they got a pretty good idea of how much it's gonna cost. How about pricing? Have you guys settled on a price for the? Forty-nine. Forty-nine. Forty-nine ninety-nine. Okay. And how much is um, materials? Seven dollars. Materials. Seven dollars. Ten for materials and five dollars for labor costs. Wow. So that's a margin of thirty-seven dollars eighty. Um. Eight minus it. Well, good, good. You guys got your costs exactly down. Mm-hmm. Talk about precise. They are clearly ready for their big competition, but is the world ready for their big idea? talk to people in the school or your friends about this idea? We took surveys. Most time they say it's a stupid idea, but I tell them just wait on. Okay. It'd be most of my most of my friends, <laughs> but I'll be telling them it's gonna be something. How are you gonna convince people to use it? Like it's it's such a foreign idea to people. We how go, how we are you gonna, gonna make it look fast? It's not just gonna be like a regular book bag. It's gonna be a regular book bag. I, it's not gonna be a regular book bag on the front where we put it on the back. It's gonna look stylish. It's gonna make you want to wear it. So is it just you guys are gonna wear on the backpacks and everyone's suddenly gonna be like, wow, that's interesting? Or are you gonna pay some, try to get some celebrities? We gonna get Beyonce to wear. You know they're gonna wear it. All the things. LeBron wearing. James. Yeah. Do you know that some people literally send LeBron James this backpack for free and try to get him to use it? People take pictures of it in public, and all of a sudden your your business is skyrocketing. We gonna get LeBron James, Beyonce to be in one picture, one and be like, hey, she'll be saying, I'm a single lady, and they go sitting, they just gonna buy it. He gonna make some threes, and people do. He gonna say, he gonna say, stay, take us, 
Uh, would you like a Sprite? He's going to say, would you like a double back? Back or back? You know how he say that. What is he going to say? Would you, instead of saying, would you like a Sprite? Because, you know, his Sprite can break. Instead, he'll say, would you like a double back pack? I would never ask you to drink this Sprite. I would ask you to buy a double back pack. I, no, I bet that up. I would never tell you to drink this Sprite. I'd ask you. I'd tell you to buy a double back pack. I'd ask you to drink this Sprite. This is going to be great. That's the bottom line, right? <laughs> this is gonna be great. Yeah, and I'm like probably three generations of our family will not have to work. <laughs> except that you except that you want them to work. I mean you know that story that's so a business. And that's why we created the LLC. You already created one? No, not yet. We that's what we don't be the business, we make it an LLC so that because our partnership wants both of us die. We can't pass it on to nobody. How, how do you guys know about LLCs? I didn't know what an LLC, what an LLC was at your age. You <laughs> we got to do a class. I think I did at first. I used to see LLC on things, but I never knew. I wonder what it was. Yeah. We go make an empire. <laughs> I'm surprised your school even has an entrepreneurship class. You know the story? I think we got it that? last year. Okay. Last you know year most schools don't year. have that. They don't. No. I ain't know that. My school didn't have one. It's pretty pretty rare to have one. Yeah, you know, most of them just teach you know history, math, and. Um, tell me about Mr. Coley. What do you you know really like or appreciate about him? I say his personality. He a cool teacher. One of my one of my best teachers. I say he like he's serious, but at the same time like. He one of he not one of teachers that just say, do this, do that. He actually get in touch with the work. Like he help you understand something you don't understand, and like he not just one of those teachers that, that sit back, be like, this is what I told you to do. And, like so, he a pretty cool teacher. He help you understand what you don't understand. He clearly makes a lot of time for you guys. Is it, was it his lunch period as well when yeah. I walked in, and he's yeah. he's giving away his lunch period to mm -hmm. to be with you guys. Yeah. And when we come back, the final segment, these two young men learning about things that they could only learn thanks to the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurships work in so many schools across this country. And my goodness, to hear these guys talk about the future, to talk about margins, margins in, in a public school, what a good thing. And also about prices and pricing. And by the way, to hear all that we do Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we tell so many great business stories there as well. My goodness, the Cornelius Vanderbilt Hour is priceless. Sam Walton's Hour, Bernie Marcus's, who is the founder, the co-founder of Home Depot. And all of our great businesses started with an idea. An idea. By the way, those ideas protected by patent laws, protected by all kinds of things, and protected by property rights, conferred by the Constitution itself. This is Our American Stories. The story of these two young men comes to a conclusion in St. Louis after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of high schoolers Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney and their business, the Double Backer Packer. That's their pitch. And we're now on to the fun part, the regional sale, that regional pitch competition they're playing in, where they get a chance to win real money and go to New York City for the national competition. Are you ready for this? Uh-huh. To get to tonight's regional competition, Raheem and Daman have already won the pitch competitions for their school and for the city of St. Louis, where they won $100. He uh, plans on spending it, or, or saving it. It doesn't just have to be spent. I'm not going to pay my phone bill. You pay your own phone bill? Your parents don't pay for it? See, my mom, she, she kind of cheap, though. She, she barely want to buy I mean, her phone's supposed to be smart, but it's really not as smart. Does, does it do have... crazy things at crazy times. <laughs> but I, I, she, she said I'm like, she said I need to be more responsible and not dependent on everybody. So did she say, I'm only going to get you a smartphone if you no. pay for it? No, I just bought my, I bought my own phone. You bought it on your own. Yeah, so she wasn't going to get you a phone. Because sometimes she, like, when we have attitudes, sometimes she, you know, she might be grimy. And not pay the phone bill. But so I just bought my own phone on my own account. But I, I paid every bill so far. Wow. So you, you did she did get you your own phone, no? I pay I paid for it with my report card money. So if you get uh good grades? Yeah. Yeah, what do you got? What's your GPA? Right now I think it's like three point two, but it's usually three point right. six, three point seven. What's right going now. on this last semester? Slowing down. Yeah. I think it's because it's the last, like, school almost out, I think. All right. It's slacking <laughs> up, but I, I got good grades for the most part. What do you get, like, per A or per B? What's your... Most of the time I get mainly all A's and B's, but I got... What, what do you get for an A? What's your reward? Oh, uh, I, I don't... It's at church. I don't know. Oh, it's at church? Yeah. Your church does this. Uh, so but usually every time I get, grades? like, $150 most of the time. Okay. They just started this last, like, two years ago last wow. year. That's awesome. You know, when I love going to church for though. Huh? I love going to church for my birthday. Everybody give you a dollar or more. You just, like, everybody, imagine all those people. On your birthday, they all yeah. give you a dollar? Uh-huh. Or more, that, just like, they I don't know what kind of churches you, you guys go to. My, my I churches think that's don't do any of this stuff. I just go and give money at church. <laughs> <laughs> All kidding aside, tonight's stakes are the highest they've ever been for these guys. A $1,500 grand prize in the first and second prizes both earn a trip to New York City, which would be their very first trip to the Big Apple and an opportunity to compete for a $25,000 grand prize in the national nifty competition. If we subsidently accidentally fail tonight well tonight to accidentally fail yeah. that's the only way you're gonna fail Just accidentally because <laughs> we, we might miss it might it most likely it'll be our fault like a little silly mistake and they covered it more better than we did so if we don't do a great job tonight then we'll uh i'll probably think about strike team Yeah, I don't think most people think about Shark Tank as a backup option. (laughs) Anyways, to close, I asked Raheem and Damon if they were nervous for the biggest night of 
of their lives. When they call your name or they say it's your turn, it's just nervous walking, but when you get to talk to them, it's, it's sort of like trying to anticipate the drop on like, say you your first time driving a roller coaster, trying to anticipate when a big drop gonna come. So it's like, you feel all the pressure, and then when it's dark, you just, okay, this ain't that bad, and you just can go with it. It's now 6 p.m. The competition is about to start. I'm in the pre-reception gathering interviewing folks and ran into this guy. So what's your name? Antoine McKinney. Okay. And why are you here, Anton? Uh, my son. Uh, he's doing a double book bag. Oh, great. Double I interviewed bag. your son this morning. Did you? Which one's yours? They mine. McKinney. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are you, how proud are you? I'm proud. Yeah? I'm proud. You ever think you'd be doing this? this? No, no. I never thought I'd be part of this. <laughs> <laughs> He's the first. Oh, man. Have you seen him present already before? Yes. Were you nervous the first time you presented for him? No. No? No. Why not? It's a, a growing experience for him. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and a good low-risk way to do it, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think about his idea? I think it's brilliant. It's the first. I've never seen one. Yeah. That's the best one I've seen. You see them? They got them right there. Oh, yeah, they, yeah. They're detachable. Yeah. Bluetooth compatible. <laughs> I think Damon's dad is ready to join their sales force. I turned off my microphone and was about to find the next person to talk to when Antoine said something unexpected, and I asked him to say it again. He inspires me. He, your son inspires you. Yes. You're the grown adult, and he inspires you. Yes. How? This is unbelievable what he did. I mean, this invention that he came up with is just incredible. I, I feel like you're close to crying. I can yes. see it in your eyes. Yes. Yes. Very proud. Yeah. I'm proud. I'm happy. I inspire me that he's doing something. Yeah. He's going for a goal. He wants something out of life. Oh, man. Not like his other brothers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> And then, it was showtime. Hello, my name is Damon McKinney. It is my business partner. Ryan Blair. And we're here to introduce our business product, the Double Backer Packer. The Double Backer Packer? What's that? Let me explain. The guys did a great job with their eight and a half minute presentation. But then, they had to face the judges. So who would be your first ambassador? So you have this awesome backpack. Who's the first person you're going to go to at your school to ask for where this post on social media? Maybe the athletic director. Is the athletic director going to walk around with a double backpacker? I don't know. <laughs> uh, oh, the yeah. principal. The gonna, principal might do it. We're going to target our star athletes, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> target star athletes. You're going to target your star athletes and your captains. Um, that's who you're going to have as your brand ambassadors. That way, they're doing the coolest thing and everyone's going to gravitate towards you. What a learning experience for Raheem and Damon to have experienced entrepreneurs not just judge them, but to help them think through their venture. And once all the presentations were done, the judges deliberated behind closed doors and came out for the moment everyone had been waiting for. The next two finalists are both qualifying for the New York, for the national competition in New York City. And in second place, with receiving a reward of $1,000 from Normandy High School, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinnon.
They were going to New York, and I will see you guys in New York and cannot wait for it. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job as always, Alex. And it might even be interesting to follow these guys one more time before that event. Go up to St. Louis, get to know these families. Because what a story. You know, the dad was saying how moved he was and inspired he was. But he also said, boy, he's different than those other sons of mine. And I can only imagine the circumstances so many of the young boys in that particular school and girls go through. And thanks for all the fine work that the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship does for at-risk kids and for kids who wouldn't know what entrepreneurship is. By the way, I'm in a middle-class and upper-middle-class school district where I don't think most of the folks know what entrepreneurship is either, though at least there are any number of small and mid-sized business owner families in that school, and at least the kids can get to meet those families. But in some of the neighborhoods in this country, there's very little ownership of anything in their lives. And my goodness, that hope that can get breathed into the life of a young mind What's that worth? You heard their voices, and we're going to hear more from these two young men. This is Our American Stories, Rahim and Damon's story, and the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're hearing the music of a great American city, New Orleans, or if you spent a lot of time there, New Orleans. And by the way, I have, my wife and I got married there, she's a Biloxi girl, Biloxi, Mississippi, and New Orleans is, well, it's not far away, that's the home city for her, home football team, home everything. And New Orleans is perhaps the most recognizable Well, cuisine in America, shrimp, po'boys, oysters, Rockefeller, the list goes on. This next story isn't just about food, though. It's about one of the most important chefs in America today, a woman who provided a place for the civil rights movement to change the nation, but also cooked up some really great Creole food while doing so. Here's Monty Montgomery and Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography, with the story of Leah Chase. She's fed everyone from George W. Bush to Barack Obama. Ray Charles would write a song about her restaurant where Martin Luther King Jr. and other activists would draft plans for the civil rights movement. And Tiana from the animated Disney movie The Princess and the Frog was inspired by her. Leah Chase is the Queen of Creole and is still cooking today. And every day Dookie Chases is open even at the age of 95. Well, certainly as a, a role model for how to age, she's, she's it. I mean, that's something that she just is, never gives up, never sat down and said, oh, I'm going to eat bonbons now or whatever. You know, she's definitely still goes to her restaurant every day. Um, but she's just such a role model in so many other ways. So starting out, she worked in the kitchens of 
uh, white restaurants and during the Jim Crow South period. And these were often white tablecloth restaurants where she was working. And she noticed that black people didn't really have restaurants. So she was getting married to a man named Dookie Chase and his family had a, a bar and sandwich shop. And so she said, let's turn this into a real restaurant for African-Americans. Leah Chase would marry Edgar Dookie Chase II, a musician by trade, in 1946. But the sandwich stand that would later become the famed restaurant it is today had very humble beginnings. And a bit of luck, literally. Here's Leah Chase. Well, my mother-in-law first started this. And the reason she started it because her husband was sickly and he was, he would go out and people from Chicago and all the places, you would call his job a numbers runner. But in New Orleans, we were very sophisticated. So it wasn't a numbers runner, it was a lottery vendor. <laughs> so you see, we put class to that. But that's how he did, and he, he couldn't go from house to house for, to get his clients and all that. So, because he was sick, so she opened up this little sandwich shop. But so she did that and not knowing anything. But she knew she could make a sandwich, she knew she could cook, and she borrowed $600 from a brewery. Can you imagine starting a business today with $600? and no knowledge of what you're doing. She was a good money manager, that I'm not. My husband used to call me a bankrupt sister to come to bankrupt. <laughs> She'll spend everything you got, and I would. And Leah Chase wasn't just opening the doors of cuisine to people who'd been shut out of it for so long. She was also opening the doors of her restaurant to everyone in the community. She had this, this kind of streak in her that was so generous. So if people who lived in the neighborhood couldn't, couldn't afford the food, she would take a, a, a painting or she would take something else from them. And so she has one of the best collections of African-American art that you will ever see. And it's all on display in the restaurant. In addition to that, she, um, she opened her doors to white people. And that was totally against the law. But through just the fact that she made everybody behave and all of that sort of thing, and she had good relationships with the police, they turned a blind eye to it. And they actually, she, you know, a mayor, the mayor could come or the police chief could come and meet with people that he might need to meet with in the uh, African-American community at Dookie Chase. So there was actually a useful political purpose to some of this. But then it also became a place where you could, the, the planning of the, the civil rights movement happened there. And so she was involved in all of this and was so wonderful about opening her doors. By the 1960s, Dookie Chase's wasn't just changing the way people came together around a plate of food. He was also providing a space for people to come together looking to change America. And I don't know how we did it, but as I said, my mother-in-law was a kind, kind person. And you didn't have any African-Americans on the police force at that time. They were all white. But they would come around and she would say, 
but they, I'm a picture of a sandwich. So she would fix them a sandwich, give them a little, today they would call that bribery. <laughs> <laughs> but she was just that kind of person. She liked to do things for you. She liked to give. So she would do that. Maybe that helped us out because nobody ever bothered us. We had Jim Dombrowski, all the Ben Smith who started what this all kinds of things right in that restaurant, and nobody ever bothered us. Well, once you got inside those doors, nobody ever, ever bothered you. The police would never come in and bother our customers, never. So they felt safe to come there. They could eat, they could plan. All the Freedom Riders, that's where we planned, they planned all their meetings. They would come, and we would serve them a bowl of gumbo and fried chicken. So I said, we changed the course of America over a bowl of gumbo and some fried chicken. The primary purpose of a restaurant is to serve food. But the obvious secondary purpose is to provide a place where people can come together and talk to each other face to face. Dookie Chase has provided that space to people who were previously unable to. And talking is something that Leah Chase still places a high value on today. That's what we're not doing. We're not talking. Come together. I don't care if you're Republican or what you are. Come together. Talk. And I know those old guys. I was friendly with old guys like Tip O'Neill and all those people. They knew how to come together and talk. And, and you would disagree. Maybe that's okay but you would talk and we would come to a good thing and meet. And so that's what we did in that restaurant. Even at 95, Leah Chase continues to work in her restaurant every single day it's open and also continues to open the doors to everyone in the New Orleans community and beyond. And she's not planning on settling down anytime soon. It's just not in her nature. Keep trying to do a little bit every day. Every day you do a little bit, try to make it better. And that's been my whole life. Well, I came up in the country, small town, had to do everything, had to haul the water, had to wash the clothes, do this, do that, pick the dumb strawberries, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but still, my daddy insisted that we act nice, we kind. And you know, my mother taught us, she was tough on us. And she said, you know, Leah, she taught, gave us all this plaque. To be a good woman, you have to first look like a girl. Well, I thought I looked like a girl. Act like a lady. That I never learned to do. <laughs> Think like a man. Now, don't act like that man. Think like a man and work like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so we learned that the hard way. And they taught you that. They taught you what women had to do. We were taught that Women control the behavior of men. How you act, they will act. The change Leah brought to America can't be understated. She is a revolutionary, but she's still on the move, never looking back, but always looking forward. And she has some advice on that. The thing we have to do in, in this city, in all cities, mamas have to start being mamas today, you know? They have to start understanding when you bring this child in the world, you have to make a man out of it, you have to make a woman out of it. And that takes some doing. It takes sacrifice, 
Maybe you won't have long fingernails, maybe you won't have the pretty hair, but that child will be on the move. And that's what you have to do. We have to concentrate on educating and making these children understand what it's all about. Sometimes you do hard things to make changes, and that's what you have to tell young people today. Okay, you can protest, you can do, but put the past behind you. I can't make you responsible for what your grandfather did. That's your grandfather. I have to build on that. I have to make changes. I can't stay there and say, oh, well, look what they did us then, look what they did now. You remember that, but that makes you keep going on, but you don't hop on it every day. You move, and you move to make a difference, and everybody should be involved. My children said, Mother, don't get political, you know. <laughs> don't get political because, you know, we don't like that. But you have to be political today. You have to be involved. Be a part of the system. And great work, as always, to Monty Montgomery, our intrepid Hillsdale intern. And thanks to Hillsdale, to Dr. Larry Arn, the folks there for lending us their best and brightest each and every summer. Thanks to Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography. And thank you for the story of Leah Chase, her story here on Our American Stories.